Today our sermon will be taken from Galatians chapter 3, verses 10 to 14. This is the word of God. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteousness shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Thus says the Lord. Thank you, Michael. All right, guys, today we're going to be continuing in our series in the book of Galatians. Uh, we've been going through this for the past few weeks. And uh, right now, we're on chapter 3, and we're going to talk about verses 10 to 14 because it's a packed uh, passage in itself. So the past few chapters, we've seen Paul doing all he can through the letter of Galatia to protect the gospel truth in the midst of Christians in a region called Galatia. And he does this because there's a group that came into this region of churches who started preaching a false gospel, different from what the scripture teaches. This group that came into Galatia was called the circumcision group. We read that in chapter 2, right? The circumcision group preaches that sinful man can be forgiven and sinful man can have eternal life, become the child of God, if they obey God's laws. That's how you earn the right to become a child of God. That's how you earn right to be saved. Paul calls this false. He, he calls this legalism. Legalism, right? You have to obey the legal requirements of the law to have a relationship with God. And because this group came in and started preaching legalism in Galatia to these Galatian Christians, they were cast down. They were tired. They were filled with undue anxiety, thinking that in order to maintain God's love for them, they have to keep up with the law. They have to consistently be obedient with the law. It's all up to them. They're filled with undue pressure and stress because they're scared of losing or have lost God's love every time they make a mistake. They're filled with weariness because they cannot approach the God they love because they have failed. This legalism makes them feel unworthy to become the children of God. And Paul ministers these Christians who are chained down by the unbiblical burdens of the law, by these extra-biblical pressures people put on them, and tells them to rest. Rest. That in Christ, you are a child of God. You are fully forgiven. The way to get to God is not by obeying the law. It's by something much more beautiful than that. We saw the past few weeks, as we studied the first few chapters, that Paul combats legalisms in many ways. But this way, he uses an interesting approach. He ministers the gospel to Christians who are beat down by people misinterpreting and abusing God's law. He, he ministers the gospel to, to Christians who are tired and weary of their own sin and scared to approach God through the law of God. It's interesting. He tells people, you can go to God, I know, I know right now you feel like you failed the law and that you can't approach God because you failed. That's because actually you haven't looked at the law properly. You have misinterpreted what the law is all about. Paul interestingly says that we can find freedom from unending anxiety of losing God's love. We can find freedom by the weariness of fear caused, caused by the uncertainty of God's love for us. We can find assurance of his love of our eternal life through the law of God. 
Now see, a lot of us think that God gave us his commandments and his laws primarily as an instruction to become better people. God, God gave us his laws so we can have better lives. God's laws are primarily instructions of how we can earn God's favor on earth or earn it in heaven. And Paul says that is not ultimately why God gave us his laws. The real reason is much more beautiful than that. I'll tell you the three points we have today, but let's go in prayer before. Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through many ways, and we thank you that all of the Bible ultimately points to this gospel, to Christ. We thank you that even through the law, we can actually see you and your love for us. Let us understand this, work with our hearts, work in our minds as we come to you and um, study more about your love for us through something um, like the law. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In this passage, Paul says, God gives us his laws not primarily for us to become better people, but God gives us his laws to show us, one, that God cannot be without sin, two, that man cannot be without sin, and three, to show us the God-man who took on sin. God gave us his law to show us that God cannot be with sin, that God cannot be without sin, and the God-man who took on sin. All right, let's talk about our first point. Point one, God cannot be with sin. Now, stick with me in the next two minutes as we go through something that might kind of feel like a bit of a mind twister, okay? I'm not doing this to just be funny. I'm doing this so that we can get the concept. I think to understand this passage, we, we have to understand this concept well. And it's the concept of this, the concept of things that God cannot do. Things that God cannot do. Okay, some people... In their attempt to question God, they have asked this question before. If God is all-powerful, is there anything that God can't do? If God is all-powerful, is there anything that God can't do? And the person who believes in God, let's just say this person is a Christian, uh, this Christian wants to defend God so quickly that he says, no, God is all-powerful, so therefore, there's nothing that God can't do. And then the other person asked the Christian, if God is all-powerful, can God make a rock so heavy that he himself can't pick up? Okay, God is all-powerful. He can do everything, right? The person goes, okay, if God can do everything, can God create a rock so heavy that he himself can't pick up? And at this point, the Christian's caught in a logical dilemma. Because if God is all-powerful and can do everything, he should then be able to create a rock so heavy that he can't pick up, right? He can do everything. He, 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 he can create such a rock. But then if there exists such a rock so heavy that he can pick up, then he's no longer all-powerful. You see what I'm saying? God should be able to, right? Yeah, he's God. He can do everything. He can, he can create a rock so heavy he can't pick up. But then if such a rock exists, he's no longer all-powerful. The Christian is caught in his own logical or her own logical dilemma. And it's because he or she too quickly came to the conclusion that God can do everything. No, there are things that God can't do. Not because he's weak, but in fact because he is all-powerful. Let me explain. If, if, if God is all-powerful, God cannot be weak. See, there are things God can't do. If God is truth, God cannot lie. God can't do that. 
if God is all-wise, God cannot be unwise. Because God is God, he cannot be less than God. There are things God can't do. See what I'm saying? So no, God can't make a rock so heavy that he can't pick up, because then that would make him less than God. And God cannot be less than God. Because God is all-powerful, he cannot be weak. Because God is truthful, he cannot lie. Because he's all-wise, he cannot be unwise. There are some things God can't do, namely, he cannot be less than God. Now, in our text today, there is one character of God that Paul highlights that God cannot go against because he is God. And this character is God's justice. The Bible tells us God is just. Just, or or where we get the word justice from, it's a legal language, right? It's a language that we hear in a criminal court of law, right? Justice is being served. This is not justice. Our sins, the Bible says has brought about legal criminal charges before a heavenly court. And God, in his justice, must deal with sin. He cannot be unjust, you see, because he is just. He cannot just let sin go without it being undealt with. Let's just look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 14, how sin is described as a record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. There's some legal demands that must be accounted for. If God truly is just, he cannot allow crimes to go unpunished. It would make God unjust. It would make God less than God. One more, one more verse, just to be convinced from Scripture, that God is just, that he can't just let sin go unpunished. Okay, look at the Old Testament, the book of Numbers in the Old Testament, verse 14, uh, chapter 14, verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty. He will by no means clear the guilty. He won't just let guilt go unpunished. He won't just let sin go unaccounted for. And this is why Paul says in our passage in verse 10, For all who rely on works of the law, it's, it's, in, your, it's in your handouts if you want to look at it, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Cursed everyone who doesn't abide in all things of the law. Paul is saying unless we succeed in obeying all of God's commandments, unless we can be absolutely sinless, we cannot have a relationship with God. Why? Because by nature, God cannot be unjust. By nature, God must deal even with the slightest sin. If not, that would make him unjust. He must deal with sin, lest he be less than God. Now, people who fall into legalism usually think that if we obey the major laws and we fail on kind of the smaller laws, we're good. As long as we have the big rocks in place, that's what the Pharisee asks in our uh, confession of sin, right? Lord, what's the greatest commandment? Like, tell me, tell me which one I have to really, really do, and then tell me the ones that I can kind of fail in. Paul says, no, that, that, that's, not how it is, that's not how it works. You can't reach God just by obeying 60% of his commandments. You can't reach God just by obeying 90% of his laws. God is utterly holy and just. To approach him, we must be perfectly sinless. Um, Technically, I guess, Scripture says you can have a relationship with God through the law. Look at verse 12. This is what Paul says here. But the law 
is not a faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Okay, Paul's saying, that, okay, yes, you have to obey all of the law to get to God, right? You have to completely, perfectly obey all of it. So there is a way to get to God through the law. You can find life through the law, but you just have to do all of it. Verse 12, right? The one who does them shall live by them. The one who does them, the commandments, shall live, find life, by their obedience to them. But if you're going to go that route, you best be absolutely sure that you can obey 100% of it and that you don't stumble even at one point because God is a just God and he cannot let sin go unpunished. This is why Jesus said in, in Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Sure, you can enter the kingdom of heaven by your righteousness, but it better be perfect to the point that even Pharisees can't reach it. By the way, the Pharisees memorized the first five books of the Old Testament word by word. If you're not more holy than them, forget about it. This is why James said uh, in, the, in, in the New Testament letter of James, chapter 2, verse 10, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. Sure, you can find life through the law, but you best be sure that you don't fail even at one point. Because if you succeed in most of it, but fail in one point, it's as if you failed in all. Because God cannot be unjust. He cannot be unholy. God's holiness and justice is not so frail that we can approach him carelessly. In Exodus chapter 33, when Moses asked God, I want to see your glory. I'm not going to move from this spot unless you show me your glory. God says, okay, I'll show you my glory. But I'm going to put you in between a rock and I'll show you the back of me, and I'll cover you with my hands. Because if I show you the fullness of who I am, it will shatter you. It will destroy you. Because I cannot be with sin. I cannot be with sin. This is Moses we're talking about. How more should that worry us? Because God is just and holy. Look at verse 10 one more time in this perspective. Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. If you choose this, choose this route, go ahead and do it, but make sure you obey every single one down to the iota. If not, you're done. I'm done. We're done. Think about it. Why would Paul say this to a group of Christians who are already bogged down with their sin? Why would Paul say this to a group of Christians who are already anxious and overburdened by the law? I could just hear them say, great, thanks a lot, Paul. I really appreciate those words of encouragement. Yeah, you know, that's even harder than what the legalistic people say. How could we ever do that? Nobody can be that sinless. I can just hear them say that. And that's exactly what Paul addresses in verse 11. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. After Paul tells them, you want to obey God? You want to have a relationship with God by the law? That, that's the route you're going? Good. Do that. But make sure you obey every single one of them. Because if you don't, God cannot be unjust, and he will account for sin. The reaction to that is, oh my gosh, how can I ever do that? How can anybody ever do that? This is where Paul comes in, verse 11. Of course. That's the reaction he was looking for. Of course you can't do that. Verse 11. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. It's evident, it's obvious that nobody can do this. No one can be justified, made just, made right before the law. 
which leads us to our second point. God's laws not only show us how holy he is, that he cannot be with sin, but God's law shows us that man cannot be without sin. Okay, first point. You, you want to obey the law? You want to find a relationship with God through the law? Sure, but, but, but do it all, because if you don't, we're done. You can't do it right? Good. Verse 11. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. You see the word justified here one more time? Um, again, justified just means being made innocent. If God is in his justice, um, by nature must deal with sin, no one could be innocent before God. The law shows us no one can do this. No one can reach that level of holiness. Imagine the law like a light that shines into a dark room. Imagine you're in a dark, dark, dusty room, and you open the door, and it's all dark. And you open a window, and a ray of light shines in from that window. What do you see in that ray of light that you did not see before? Dust particles flying around. You couldn't see them until the light shined their existence to be. It's, it's been there the whole time. It's been dirty and dusty the whole time. But until the light shines into the room, you don't see the dust. That's what the law of God does. It shines a light into our dark hearts and tells us, you can't do it. You, you're, you're, you can't be without sin. This is the whole point of the law, to show that God is holy, God cannot be with sin, and that man cannot be without sin. I was watching a TV show recently. It's a good show. Talk to me later about it if you want to know about it. Um, it's on Netflix. It's about a detective who is solving a small-town murder. And the main character is a cynical, suspicious detective. Um, and somebody, uh, there's a good quote, somebody in that, in that show went to the detective and said this really interesting line. He said, I pity you. I pity you that you see sin in the midst of everyday normal life because he's so suspicious. He's so suspicious of life, right? And I think that's true. There is a reality that we don't just want to see sin everywhere, that we just want to be, oh, sin, 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 sin. There's, there's beauty in life. There's joys in life. There's, there's, there's goodness. There's holiness. There's righteousness in life. God has created this world. But at the same time, I think too often we suppress the reality of sin because we would do whatever it takes to avoid saying, I am weak. We will do everything it takes to avoid saying, I need help. Because of that, we suppress this doctrine of sin. We suppress this doctrine of man's need for God. And we've done this throughout centuries. Look at verse 11 again. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. If you look at the righteous shall live by faith, it's in quotations. When you see that, it's usually referring to an Old Testament verse that the New Testament author is quoting. So this was written somewhere in the Old Testament, right? The righteous shall live by faith. Well, if you look at it, where in the Old Testament was this written? It's in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And the context of this sentence, the righteous shall live by faith, was, was the author rebuking a pride king of Babylon who thought he can find redemption, who thought he can, he can save himself by his power, by his riches, by his strength. Habakkuk wrote and said, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. See, kings in the Old Testament have to deny their need for salvation by their own strength since long ago. Not only that, the nation of Israel, if you read the Old Testament, you see over and over and over again, this is God's people who has been 
encountering God throughout their journeys, and, and even they make gold idols. Even they rely upon the works of their hands, rely on their self-effort to find salvation, to find deliverance. And then after that, even in the New Testament, we've studied the book of Galatians for a few weeks now. In chapter 2, we just read that the apostle Peter and James themselves fell into legalism. The apostle and Peter and James themselves started saying that, oh, I guess I'm not lovable by God unless I obey the law. So they started putting all these extra biblical laws on Christians. And the church, after the days of the apostles, slowly drifted to this. So you have to be saved by personal confessions, by praying, by saying some kind of chant, or by paying penance. That can somehow make your standing right with God. Man has done almost everything imaginable and will continue to do anything imaginable to avoid simply saying, I am weak. I can't do it. I need help. I need a Savior. And these are the words that the law of God, if viewed properly, will force us to say. Because it shows just how holy God is, and it shows just how sinful we are. See, earlier we said that those who are legalistic think that they can earn God's love um, and salvation by their obedience. Um, And this is true, but if you think about it, everybody that's legalistic always has a low view of God's holiness and always has an overly high view of their self-righteousness. If you think, if if we think we can earn God's salvation by our own obedience, it's always caused because we have a low view of God's holiness and we have too high of a view of our own righteousness. That's what causes legalism. The law destroys that. The law says, "Uh uh-uh, you don't approach God carelessly. He cannot be unjust. And you, look at your own life. Can you ever live up to this? No, you can't. If the law of God viewed properly, you will see how holy God is, how sinful we are, and ultimately, our last point, it will show us the God-man who took on sin. The point of the law is to point to Christ. It is abundantly clear at this point that no one can have a relationship with God by obeying the law. Why? Because we simply aren't strong enough to obey it perfectly. We have stained our legal record before before a heavenly court of law, right? Since God is just and holy, he can't just ignore this legal debt we have before this court of law. He can't just ignore sin or else it'll make him less than God. So what hope is there for these Galatian Christians who are bogged down by their sin? What hope is there for us now who so often run away from God, who so often shy away from God because we feel like we've failed in obeying his commandments? I've heard many stories of people running from the church because they don't feel like they're good enough or they're holy enough. I've even talked to somebody recently, and this person told me that their pastor told him or her that they can't approach God in prayer unless they have been obedient to God. That they can't approach God in prayer unless they have been fully repented from their sins. Is that true? Can we not approach God unless we have fully obeyed the law? Well, if God is holy and just, I guess it is true, right? Unless we have fully repented from our sins, then don't dare approach him. It will shatter you. What hope do we have? To them in Galatia back in the day, and to us today, Paul very skillfully crafts verse 13 to 14. Read it with me. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree 
so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Let's talk about this real quick. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, again, it's, it's been written somewhere else, right? This is another uh, pointing to the Old Testament. For it is written, this sentence, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, referring to the cross. Where is it written? Where is it written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree? This is really important. It's written in Deuteronomy, uh, in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament. Deuteron- Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22 to 23. Look, look at this carefully. And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain there all night, for a hangman is cursed by God. Why is this significant? Why did Paul choose specifically this Old Testament passage to quote here? We've just talked about we have a criminal charge before a holy God in a holy courtroom. We have a legal debt, right? What kind of punishment was given? Oh, what, um, what kind of uh, uh, punishment was, was, uh, is hanging on a tree specifically for? Read it again. It's for those who is committed a crime. Remember earlier we said because of our sins, we have a criminal record, a legal debt before a heavenly court of law. And because God is just, he can't just let that legal debt go. He has to deal with it. Who is it now that was punished as a criminal on a tree, hung in between two other criminals. Jesus Christ, was it not? Who was made as a criminal to pay for our crimes on a tree? Jesus Christ. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. His death on a cross made our legal debt in heaven clear because an innocent man was counted as a criminal criminals like us can be counted innocent before him earlier we also talked about the book of numbers how god is just how god cannot have a relationship with man unless they obey all of the law if you fail even at one point you failed at all of it because he must deal with sin let's read it read it again numbers 14 18 the lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. But he will by no means clear the guilty. He has to punish guilt. But if you look at this passage closely, it gives us another characteristic of God that he can't go against either. The Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Go to the next slide. Forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means free or clear the guilty. This is confusing, isn't it? How can God be forgiving and just at the same time? How can God not be less than God and uphold his justice, but at the same time not be less than God and uphold his mercy? How is it possible that I account people for their sin but forgive them at the same time? This is another logical dilemma, isn't it? You have to choose one or the other. Paul says, look at the cross. Look at the cross where our debt was paid in full. Justice was still upheld because God himself became the one who paid for it. But at the same time, we may receive mercy. On the cross, God's justice and mercy meets. And God can save us 
sinners who deserve eternal death because of our sin, because God is that holy and that just, he saves us on the cross without denying any of his characters. I will uphold my justice, I will uphold my mercy, and I still want to be with you. How do I do that? I must be the one who pay for it. And I will die on a cross for you. I will become a criminal for you if that can give me an eternity and make you my child. Now, in Christ, we have the right to never again doubt his love for us because we can approach this holy God who has justified us by putting the sins upon himself, and we can rest and put faith in this. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live, shall find life, shall have a relationship with God through faith in this Christ who died for us. Earlier, I said a story about a friend of mine whose pastor told them that they cannot pray to God unless they have fully repented from their sins, that they cannot approach God until they have fully obeyed the law perfectly. Now, friends, don't you dare. Don't you dare go to my daughter, Elena, and tell her that she cannot approach me and tell her that she cannot communicate with me and tell her that she cannot have a relationship with me just because she's in sin, just because she's made a mistake, just because she has been obedient to the law. Don't you dare. I'm not saying that to threaten you. I'm, I'm weaker than a lot of you here. But is that not how our Heavenly Father feels about us? If this is the reaction of an earthly father, how would he feel? How would he feel when somebody tells his child that they must refrain from approaching him because of their disobedience? That they must refrain from approaching him because they've sinned? How does that make him feel? I wonder, I merely wonder, if there exists a wrath greater than that which comes from a loving parent who has been denied access to their child. The thing is, though, it's often not other people's words who cuts off our access to our Father, is it? It's not what other people say that makes us timid to approach God. It's not what other people say that make us hesitant into throwing ourselves to Him fully and completely. It's rather ourselves, isn't it? It's our own sins that make us doubt. It's our own mistakes that make us hesitant. It's our own lack of obedience that make us timid in approaching Him. Through the blood of Christ, hear God plead with you through this passage, not with a threatful tone, but with earnest longing. He's saying, don't you dare. Don't you dare shy away from me. Whatever it is you've done, whatever things you've done that makes you think you don't have the right to come near me, look upon that cross. I have paid for your debt in full. I have fulfilled the justice I'd, I need to fulfill. I've purchased the right to be with you, and you are now with me unhindered. Don't you dare. Have you experienced this? Um, I have, and it stinks. Someone breaks up with you, and they say, it's not you, it's me. It just sucks. It never is you, really. It's not you, it's me. And that's often what we do to God, isn't it? We, we pull away, we shy away from God, saying, it's not you, God, it's me. And God is saying, that excuse no longer exists. He is saying, it will never be you. It will never be you. 
because your debt, whatever it may be, your imperfections, whatever it may be, your shortcomings, whatever it may be, has been paid and nailed on the cross. And when God sees us, he sees a clean record in heaven because he himself has become a criminal for us. He knows we'll fail. He knows we can never fulfill the law with our own hands. That's why he promised the cross, verse 14 says, since the days of Abraham. This has always been plan A, not the law. It's not that we failed the law and then, oh, Christ comes. No, this has always been about Christ. The law is meant to point us to Christ. You want to talk about the law, Paul says. You want to, you want, you want to obey the law? Here today, to Christians struggling with legalism, to Christians struggling to pull away from this God because of their sins, here today, Paul says, take a good look at the law. It will be evident that no one can be justified before God by the law. For the righteous, the justified, the ones whose debt is forgiven, the innocent child of God shall live by faith in him on the cross. Don't you dare. Let's pray. Father, we have this amazing gospel. We have this amazing truth that an innocent son of God was judged as a criminal by a human court of law so that guilty children like us can be counted as righteous and innocent by your heavenly court of law. Father, what should we do in response to this gospel? Should we sing? Should we pray? Should we read the Bible? Yes, all that. But Father, it should lead us to love and worship you deeper. Earlier we said the cause of sin is a lack of love and worship. We love and worship other things more than you. Let, Father, this gospel truth allow us to love and worship you more over all things that this world has to offer. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for your love. Let us now boldly approach you because of your cross. In Jesus' name, amen. Let us all stand. Somehow I stand Where even angels pierce the throne In thought by redeeming love Before the throne of God
Friends, remember this gospel. Remember this love of a God who will never let you go. No matter how much you run away from him, he has purchased you by his blood and he will be yours eternally and you will be his. Rest in this, live our lives this week based on this truth. Hear now your benediction. Lord, bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Now go in his peace. Father, Son.